You get up in the morning, get dressed and start making breakfast. You flick on the kettle for tea and it starts boiling away. You stick some bread in the toaster and select your desired level of toastiness. Push the lever down and it springs back up. You push it down again, the same thing happens. You check it's plugged in, switched on, yes and yes. So that's not the problem. The toaster's broken. What do you do? Immediately, probably pour out some cereal. You have to eat something. And when you have the time, you'll most likely buy a new toaster. If you're feeling conscientious, you might wait until council has an electronics chuck out or take it to a recycling centre yourself. Otherwise, it'll likely join the 600,000 tonnes of electronic waste that Australians send to landfill every year. What you're less likely to do with your busted toaster is take it to be repaired. You're probably even less likely to try to repair it yourself. Today, we're looking at repair and how modern design practices, mass production and the law have made it harder to get things fixed. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Caitlin McHugh. Before you start feeling too guilty about chucking that toaster rather than having a tinker with it, consider this. Most appliances manufactured today aren't intended to be repaired. One of the key concepts that designers use is the notion of, of affordances. And when designers make things, they're sculpting forms so that they do and don't afford certain things. Thomas Lee is a senior lecturer in design studies at the University of Technology, Sydney. He says design affects how we treat and think about everyday objects, from something as simple as a toaster to as complex as a computer. A lot of objects that are designed, particularly uh, consumer electronics, one of the things they don't afford is, is opening. It's particularly hard to open up a whole range of consumer electronic objects, your laptop for example, or a toaster. The electronics we use are black boxed. Their inner workings hidden and often inaccessible. A classic example is the smartphone. Many models can't even be opened up for something as simple as a battery replacement without special tools and the help of a professional. So your computer is you know, a classic example because we interact with the computer and, and, and use it without actually having a, a, an acquaintance with uh, the, certainly the hardware and a lot of the time the software that, that makes it up. But looking at, a, at, at an object like a toaster, for example, there are affordances that instruct you how to use it in terms of putting a piece of toast into those slots. And there's often a handle. It, it affords pushing down. But then in terms of the, the object opening up, there's very little there that suggests something that you know you might want to look inside. If it does if it does break. Thomas says there are certain things designers can take into account to encourage repair. Making it possible to take apart and replace parts of an object, for example. And I think that's one of the key uh, mindsets that designers could encourage people in, into thinking with, that things are actually not just, a toaster's not just one single thing. And so when a toaster breaks, it could be a small part within the toaster that is easy to replace without getting rid of 
the whole thing. The idea of cracking into a broken appliance like a toaster or blender is daunting for many. Apart from the difficulty in even accessing the insides of our electronics, there's the question of what we do once we're in there. Without at least a basic understanding of the various motors and wires and circuit boards that make these objects function, you end up scratching your head at the tangled guts of your broken appliance with no idea what's wrong or how to fix it. I can give you a, a hint on usually what's wrong with your toaster when it stops working. It's usually crumbs. And it's crumbs that not just get into the tray, but they get into the actual circuit board, the sort of the circuitry and the mechanics of the toaster. So if you actually pull apart the whole toaster and just give it a really good clean out and put it back together, generally it will just start again. Bridget Kennedy is a founding member of the Repair Cafe Sydney North. Before the coronavirus pandemic shut down social gatherings, the Repair Cafe set up twice a month in a council space in Lane Cove, where a team of tinkerers would do their best to repair people's things for free. We have, I think it's like five different stations. We repair, we have a gadgets station, which is our, by our busiest by far. In fact, that's double. So we have like two tables and up to four repairers uh, on any one time doing the gadgets and uh, small, you know, electrical appliances, battery operated appliances, things like that. We have a shoe repair station, so uh, which does sort of handbags, leather goods, you know, show people how to resole their shoes or do simple repairs. Um, we have jewellery, so I help with the jewellery, costume jewellery. We do ceramics, we do glassware. We do, we, we teach skill, um, knife sharpening, so tool and knife sharpening skills. And we also have clothing repairs sort of on, on um, some ladies that do sewing. So I think every repair cafe is unique to the skill set that the volunteers bring to the cafe. Bridget joined in founding the cafe out of frustration with what she sees as a throwaway culture. It just drives me crazy seeing, uh, you know, all of those throwouts and just so many things just being chucked out and the fact that you, you know, there just aren't places that you can go to repair, you know, for example, toasters and small appliances or... Um, umbrellas, you know, things that are seen as these consumable sort of throwaway items, which really, really shouldn't be because they use up so much of our resources, you know, through from the sort of extraction out of the ground to the manufacturing process, you know, all the flight mile, everything. There's just there's this huge cost, even though the dollar cost at the end is 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 quite small often. The, the actual cost of producing something like a, to a toaster over its lifetime is, is quite massive. As well as finding like-minded repair enthusiasts, Bridget has met people entirely new to repair. But people like are just so pleased that this service exists and so many people still haven't heard about it. It's to teach lost skills, so it's to, I guess to reteach that idea of to to consider repairing something before you throw it out. So yes, things that you think may not be able to be repaired, generally generally most things can be repaired in some way. And it's to reteach those skills and to and get people thinking that way, to sort of thinking, okay, let's repair something rather than throw it out. This is one of the aims at the Repair Cafe. While it does provide repair services, users are encouraged to learn to repair things for themselves. The cafe mostly focuses on repairing appliances and objects like clothing or children's toys. 
they leave phone and computer repairs to qualified repairers and take on the jobs you'd struggle to pay someone for, like straightening out a busted brolly or getting a spice grinder going again. We're not there to replace professional repairers. And there is there is an actual economy of repairing in that area already. So people know where they can go to repair like phones and laptops. So it tends to be more things that people would have no idea. A lot of small electrical appliances, so things like toasters or, you know, little um, bar mix things. Families come, like bring, you know, their kids broken toys. We have a lot of people bringing sentimental items. So particularly, I guess, the jewellery, ceramics and glassware, a lot of them aren't, you know, don't have a perceived material preciousness, but obviously have lots of memories and are very, very precious to people. The repairers often find themselves frustrated by glued down parts that can't be removed without breaking, cheap plastic goods that can be a struggle to take apart without shattering into pieces. As Thomas says, many products aren't designed with a thought to being repairable. There's nothing in Australian law that says our goods need to be repairable, and little motivation for manufacturers to make their products more accessible to consumers, or indeed repair professionals. In the European Union, on the other hand, new laws have been implemented mandating products be designed with repair in mind. In Europe, only last year we've seen some changes to their eco-design directive, which is placing an onus on manufacturers to make sure that well, they're now obliged to have spare parts available and provide that repair information for a whole range of consumable goods, such as refrigerators, washing machines um, and dishwashers, for a period of 10 years. This is Leanne Wiseman, a professor of intellectual property law at Griffith University, who studies the right to repair movement in Australia and overseas. So manufacturers firstly have to make those um, consumables in a way that enables repair to be done, to provide the information about how to repair that that device, but also make sure that there's 10 years worth of spare parts for those devices as well. There are still critics of the scheme. It only mandates supply of spare parts to professional repairers rather than consumers generally. But manufacturers say providing parts to consumers directly could raise liability issues. And the regulations send a clear signal about how long people should expect their products to last. While companies might protest that 10 years is too long, Leanne points out that in the past, the lifespan of many appliances was far longer. The European Union has taken this 10-year period, and I know that Canada um, takes a similar approach with, with respect to spare parts for agricultural machinery. Um, so 10 years is a window where um, you should be able to have spare parts available to you, and that would indicate that the lifespan of a large white appliance, such as a fridge, washing machine or dishwasher, should be in that 10-year window. So this whole issue of how long do our do we expect our goods to last now? Um, a simple example, my, you know, my parents have got the fridge that they were given for their wedding. Um, it's 54 years of age and it's still, still operating. It's a Kelvinator. But um, I've had four fridges in 10 years because simple things break and it's cheaper for them to replace the fridge than it is to um, repair it. So this is this kind of whole disposable um, 
cycle that we've gone through with white goods and this incredible kind of environmental disaster that we're heading towards with landfill being um, completely inundated with large appliances, largely because they can't be repaired. The difficulty of finding replacement parts for an old appliance or being quoted twice what you paid for a machine to get it repaired is frustrating. You might find it easier to buy a new one or maybe go without if the appliance isn't completely essential. But what if what's broken is something you rely on for your livelihood and the cost of replacing it is in the tens of thousands of dollars? And the manufacturer claims it's not actually yours to repair. In 2012, 80% of Massachusetts residents voted to pass the right to repair law. But as technology in vehicles has advanced, the debate has resurfaced. I mean, one of the things we're trying to protect is consumer choice. So right to repair starts with this problem. Company puts out really sophisticated equipment and then says if it breaks, the only one who can repair it is you've got to bring it back to the company. That means you don't get to repair it at home. You don't get to take it to a shop in town. Instead, you got to take it back to the one company that sold it to you and they can charge whatever they want to charge. The right to repair movement began in the United States. It's a loose coalition of organizations lobbying for, well, exactly what it says on the tin, the right for consumers to repair the things they own. The movement campaigns for stronger laws, requiring companies to make spare parts and repair manuals available to everyone, not just the company's own licensed technicians. Right to repair bills were filed in some 20 states last year. As well as the access to parts and manuals, right to repair groups have lobbied successfully to allow consumers to change the software on their machines, allowing them to repair more complex computerized items. Some companies have a problem with that. The reason why John Deere has um, kind of had its name associated as one of the strongest campaigners against the right to repair is that when there were um, debates going on in the United States a couple of years ago about whether a right to repair could sit comfortably within their defence of fair use. Um, they actually came out um, through their lawyers and highlighted the fact that um, when farmers bought one of their pit tractors or combine harvesters, that they didn't own those tractors or combine harvesters, but they actually were only granted a licence to use them. John Deere is an American company manufacturing agricultural, construction and forestry equipment. In 2015, they claimed that the people who bought their tractors didn't actually own them. They held an implied licence for the life of the vehicle to operate the vehicle. The issue here isn't just that John Deere won't provide parts and manuals. Modern farming equipment is packed with computer chips, running code that is the intellectual property of John Deere. This is where a piece of legislation called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act comes in. It's a US law passed in 1998 that criminalises technology that circumvents copyright protections. The restrictions on DVDs that stop you just copying them onto your computer, for example. It also criminalises the act of circumventing these protections, whether it infringes on copyright or not. What does this have to do with tractors? 
John Deere, among many other companies, places copyright protections on the code in its machines. To access this code and repair your vehicle, you need special codes provided only to licensed technicians. And if you try to get around these restrictions, some farmers have hacked into their tractors and repaired them themselves, John Deere says you're breaking the law. And that essentially statement um, was the kind of headline statement that highlighted to a whole lot of industries that this issue that where you have this digital kind of control over your goods, you don't have any privacy about what you do on the, with that vehicle. or um, So everything is tracked and everything is owned. John Deere will say it's for environmental reasons. They don't want people um, repairing their own equipment, but all for safety and security reasons. While campaigners frame John Deere's objections as egregious profiteering, there are some justifications. The software that keeps these machines running effectively also ensures they conform to environmental and safety regulations. John Deere argues that owners and unlicensed repairers can't be trusted not to tamper with these codes, and they don't want to be liable if they do. But farmers argue that when an important piece of equipment breaks, they need it repairing straight away, not just when a licensed technician can get round to it. And the obstructiveness of these companies doesn't just have consequences for American farmers. Certainly, if you're looking at Australian farmers, for example, who largely are using tractors that were built overseas for overseas conditions, um, we do need to have... Um, the ability to monitor or change slightly the way in which those machines operate just because of the, um, the difference in our geography and in our climate here. But our farmers are, are unable to do that. Australia is seeing the slow beginnings of right-to-repair legislation. This year, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission launched an inquiry into whether international tractor manufacturers are providing Australian farmers with proper access to the spare parts and software tools they need to repair their equipment. Submissions closed at the end of April and recommendations are yet to be published. On the automotive industry front, the government is drafting legislation to make car manufacturers share all service and repair information with all repairers, not just company-licensed mechanics. As the movement gains momentum in Australia, Leanne says it's important that we learn from other countries. The US is really driven by a consumer rights um, movement, that the consumer have a right to um, repair and modify and tinker the devices that they own, physically own. Whereas in the European Union, what we've seen is more of a push from an environmental sustainability perspective, and that is trying to address um, the issue of e-waste and reduce um, the environmental impacts of this kind of um, disposable society that we've become with white goods and consumables. We can't just afford to pick up what's been done overseas um, because of the different legal systems that, and um, essentially that argument around the consumer rights group. So I think what's useful for Australia and New Zealand is actually to take on board um, and learn lessons from other jurisdictions and then develop our own unique response. Thomas Lee says that cultural perceptions of repair also need to change and designers can have a hand in this. So the example of the toaster, if you wanted to make a toaster that encouraged repair for repair's sake, then I suppose, and this is being purely speculative, 
when it breaks, perhaps there's a tag attached to it that uh, invites you to go and participate in a toaster rebuilding ceremony somewhere. And as part of that toaster rebuilding ceremony, you connect with like-minded people. And when you rebuild your toaster, it doesn't look like the same object that it was before. It looks like a toaster that's been repaired. And so you signal the fact that you've repaired your toaster to anyone who, who enters your kitchen. And, you know, there might be a lot of good that comes with that approach. But framing repair as an individual right probably isn't the best way forward. Some people might take great joy in fiddling with a thermomix until they've wrangled it back into working order. But for most, they just want their things to work. It's, you know, probably particularly time intensive, probably particularly expensive and probably something that not necessarily everyone's going to be interested in. If alternatively you had uh, an example of where it's, you know, repair is just a means to an end, you know, the toaster breaks and then, okay, it's a, a toaster that for one is, is modular, it can be pulled apart quite easily and there's maybe whoever makes this toaster, whatever brand it is, they have an associated service that allows you to notify them somehow when it's been broken and they just simply come and pick it up from your house or there's a, a drop-off station not too far away. They take it back to their facility, they repair it there and then they notify you when it's been fixed and when you pick it up, it looks exactly the same as it did before. If repair is an end ends in itself, then what gets focused on is things like how convenient or, or easy it is to to repair something so you can get back to whatever your everyday life was before that. So it comes down to making repair easier and more available. Legislation is an important step. Manufacturers won't stop producing cheap throwaway products just because it's the right thing to do. And as a consequence, these cheap throwaway products will keep pouring into landfill, the materials used to make them at best going to waste or worse, polluting the earth permanently. But as well as legal impetus to make products that last, Thomas says designers should be thinking more about the objects that they put out into the world. It's the case with so many different kinds of challenges that designers are facing today is that, you know, how do you try and solve a, pr a problem that is systemic, that's complex and involves m multiple always shifting actors? How do, you, how do you try and solve that problem by making an object? And this is the, the, the necessary problem that designers today of all different sub-disciplines are having to face. And it's an extremely challenging thing to, to try and do because, you know, you can only do so much through the thing that you make. So I think that then it's important to not conceive of the thing you, that you make not just as a, a static disconnected object, but as something that's connected with uh, services, connected with systems, connected with different actors and something that uh, is important to consider in relation to the environment. Think Digital Futures is made with the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. This program is made in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can hear more of Think Digital Futures at 2SER.com or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>